0: And now, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, the podcast you've all been waiting for, Legacy Story with Adam Solomini. Wow, thank you. Thank you. What a crowd. Thank you very much. Hello, my name is Adam Solomini, and this is my podcast, Legacy Story. And uh, just a quick story, real quick, of how that crowd came about. Crowd is really uh, there to help pump me up, get me ready. You know, when I was in music, that was always one of the things that I always fed off of, and that was the crowd. I figured, hey, I need to get a crowd to pump me up at the very beginning, since I can't do this live. Let's go ahead and throw the crowd in there. Get me going. Today we're going to talk about a few things. I thought it'd be fun to maybe share what might be considered a bad legacy story. Uh, And as I had mentioned in the last episode, uh, we're going to just take a little trip back into history and pick out a few things that would be considered legacy stories. And I said, what the heck, why not just do a, a bad legacy story and a good legacy story? So we'll get to both of those. You know, Ultimately, this podcast is meant to rekindle your own legacy story, the memories that you have, and ignite a desire to create even more legacy stories. So let's get into it. Man, are we living in some crazy times or what? We, of course, are all experiencing uh, what COVID has offered the world. Now there are new strains. Some of these strains are reported to be a little bit more crazy than the original COVID. Um, So we are all, of course, bracing for that. And the political polarization in the United States is just on a whole different level. I don't think I've ever seen it before. So I have a close group of friends and we make it a point not to talk politics whatsoever, because we run the full spectrum centrists, people that are leaning left and right. And there really isn't anything bad with any of that. Why we are able to coexist in this friendship without letting politics get in the way is I think we have a really good understanding that national politics really don't affect you as much as local politics do, what's happening locally and around you. And ultimately, regardless of position on any particular subject, there are more things in common than things that we do not have in common. So I believe that's why uh, we've been friends for decades and decades in our small group. Some of them have been best friends since elementary school. But yeah, we definitely are... Dealing with some unique times. That got me to thinking, let's talk about a bad legacy story. And uh, since uh, COVID is on everybody's mind, I thought I would talk a little bit about Typhoid Mary. Now, Typhoid Mary, her real name was Mary Mollen, I believe that's how you pronounce it who was an irish-born woman she lived from 1869 to 1938 but she was actually believed to have infected 53 people with typhoid fever three of whom died the first person in the united states identified as an asymptomatic carrier of the disease Now, while she had the disease, it has been said that she was actually born with typhoid because her mother was infected with typhoid during pregnancy, but she persisted in working as a cook where she actually exposed others to the disease, and she worked for uh, multiple people in New York City, I believe it was eight families, eight or nine families, seven of which uh, contracted typhoid her new name eventually became typhoid mary that's how people now know her but what happened was there was a a guy who was assigned to kind of investigate this outbreak Uh, of course she was still working for families as a cook and eventually he was figuring out hey what is the commonality between all of these outbreaks within these families and found that uh, Malin, or Typhoid Mary, uh, happened to be working in all of these different families' homes. So he, according to his testimony, (laughs) recollected that his behavior towards her was as diplomatic as possible. She was extremely infuriated and actually threatened him with a carving fork during his investigation. So what he did was he compiled about a five-year history of her employment and found that these eight families had hired her as a cook. Seven of those families happened to have contracted typhoid fever. Now, she refused to cooperate in much of this investigation, and the reason for that was she believed that typhoid was everywhere and that outbreaks had happened because of contaminated food and water, and it wasn't her So because she wasn't cooperating, uh, eventually uh, New York had had about enough and she was arrested as a public health threat under a few codes of the Greater New York Charter. Now, she was forced into an ambulance by about five policemen and there was a doctor and at some point had to sit on her to restrain her. She was not having it. Eventually, she was transported to Willard Parker Hospital, and she was actually forced to give samples for four days. She was not allowed to get up and use the bathroom on her own. They basically watched her and eventually were able to collect some stool samples. Sounds fun. I really would not want to be one of those nurses. Now, this is kind of disgusting. Under questioning, Malin admitted that she almost never washed her hands while cooking. Now, this was not unusual at the time. The germ theory of disease still was not fully accepted and having to wash your hands all the time, uh, which probably made the spread of typhoid that much more worse. So in March of 1907, typhoid Mary was sentenced to quarantine on North Brother Island. So the gentleman who actually had an investigator decided to write an article in the Journal of American Medical Association Miss Mallon attracted a lot of media attention after that article, and that is where she actually received the name Typhoid Mary. Now at the time, not all medical experts supported the decision to forcibly quarantine people, including Typhoid Mary. They argued that she just had to be taught to carefully treat her condition and ensure that she would not transmit typhoid to others. They felt it was an overly strict punishment. Now according to Typhoid Mary, she suffered from nervous breakdowns after her arrests and forcible transportation to the hospital. She actually tried to sue the New York Health Department, but her complaint was denied. Now, in an interesting twist, she never believed that she was a carrier. And with the help of a friend, she actually sent several samples to an independent New York laboratory and all actually came back negative for typhoid. On North Brother Island, where she was quarantined, almost 25% of her analysis from March 1907 to June 1909 were also negative. After almost three years of being quarantined, On this island, the New York State Commissioner of Health decided that disease carriers should no longer be kept in isolation and that she could be freed along with anybody else that was being held in isolation. And she had to, of course, agree that she would no longer be a cook. So she left the island agreeing not to be a cook and became a laundress which meant that she cut her pay in almost half because that did not pay as much as what a cook was being paid at the time. Now at some point she wounded her arm and the wound became infected and that meant that she could not work at all for six months. And after several unsuccessful years where she wasn't making a lot of money, she went back to cooking. Probably not a good idea. So she used fake names, and took jobs as a cook against the explicit instructions of health authorities. Now, no agencies that hired servants for upscale families would offer her any type of employment. So she actually went and worked for restaurants and hotels and spa centers. So hey, instead of just infecting a family, now she's working in places with mass amounts of people. And almost wherever she worked, there were outbreaks of typhoid but she changed jobs so frequently that the original investigator who was trying to find her was unable to in 1915 typhoid mary started working at sloan hospital for women in new york city Lo and behold, 25 people were infected and to die. So, of course, the investigator was called in to try and figure out what is going on with this outbreak and identified Malin from the servant's verbal descriptions and also by her handwriting. She, of course, fled because she knew what was about to happen, but the police were able to find her and arrest her and was returned right back to North Brother Island for quarantine in March of 1915. Not a lot is known about her life in the second quarantine, but she remained on North Brother Island for more than 23 years. So long that the authorities gave her a private one-story cottage. Now she wasn't stuck there forever, she actually was allowed to take day trips to the mainland about three years into her stay. So she remained on the island until her death. So her legacy story is not a positive one, and the investigator really didn't help by calling her Typhoid Mary, which stuck. So I guess the moral of this story is, do your part, stay safe, don't be a Typhoid Mary or a COVID Cory. You can be asymptomatic and still spread it. All right, let's move on to something a little bit more positive. I would like to talk about the NFL. Why not? We have the playoffs in full effect. We are one Sunday away from finding out who's going to be playing in the Super Bowl. So why don't we talk a little bit about a legacy story and maybe something that changed the NFL forever. Quick shout out to all my fellow San Diego State Aztec alumni. With this legacy story, we're going to talk about Don Coriel, AKA Air Coriel. So Don Coriel took his first NFL coaching gig. With the St. Louis Cardinals in 1973. But before that, he was actually the head coach for San Diego State football. And he actually led them to a 104 and 19 and 2 record during his tenure there. Uh, one of the greatest coaches of all times, especially for San Diego State. At the time, the NFL didn't look anywhere close to how we see it today. The pro set offense which emphasized the running game and play-action passing, was the norm. What set his style of offense into motion at SDSU really was he was having a hard time recruiting against the likes of USC and UCLA. So what he had to do is he had to figure out a way to target quarterbacks and wide receivers over running backs and offensive linemen. So what he did was he created an offense that was geared towards the quarterback and the wide receiver, and it became more of a passing offense rather than passing and rushing. So he took this to the NFL. A couple of quarterbacks under Coriel suddenly became excellent quarterbacks. Quarterback Jim Hart for the Cardinals went to four straight Pro Bowls under him. Eventually, he moved on to the Chargers, and there was quarterback Dan Fouts. Now, at the time, Dan Fouts really hadn't done much in his first five seasons. But under Coriel, he turned into an overnight success. He became the big arm talent that we know now, going to six Pro Bowls. He also led the NFL in passing yards for four consecutive years. Eventually, he made it into the Hall of Fame, as well as a few of his teammates who happen to be wide receivers. You might ask, how is this a legacy story? Well, for Eric Coriel, it's a legacy story because he created something based on a need he needed to get recruits in. He really couldn't get the running backs and offensive linemen. So he decided to go after quarterbacks and wide receivers based on an offense that he created. Ultimately, that offense led to great success at the college level. It moved him into NFL. The NFL really wasn't doing this offense. But now this Air Coriel offense is a basic part of pretty much every offense in the NFL. His influence on other coaches like John Madden and Joe Gibbs, as well as Ernie Zampese, would all trickle down to future coaches. That were tutored by them so basically this is a legacy story because the NFL would look completely different if it weren't for Don Coryell and the style that he brought to the NFL now in recent history San Diego State football has completely changed and they have been churning out running backs left and right for Don Coryell, he changed not only San Diego State and became a winner there He also brought his style to the NFL, and that is exactly what we are seeing today in every game that we watch. Before I leave, I really would like to give you some quotes that deal specifically with legacy. Hopefully, it will inspire you a little. Carve your name on hearts, not tombstones. A legacy is etched into the minds of others and the stories they share about you. Shannon L. Alder if you would not be forgotten as soon as you are dead, either write something worth reading or do something worth writing. Benjamin Franklin. Two great quotes. Well, that's it for today's episode of Legacy Story. Thank you for listening. Join me next week when I talk a little bit more about the Legacy Story. Send me your Legacy Story via email at LegacyStoryPodcast at Infinancer.com. We want to hear from you and eventually we'll also have some guests on. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Plus, don't forget to follow me on social media at Your Legacy Story and at infinancer if you're interested in changing your trajectory and creating a legacy you can also book a free discovery session with me at infinancer.com i n f i n a n c e r.com you will be surprised at how much personal coaching can help you and move you towards a legacy of your own until next time ciao